0: No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Find the Savior. Find Yeshua HaMashiach. Find the truth on Solace Radio. Just just a couple of comments on a couple of the announcements. Um, first of all, for those of you with who were not here and are going to watch the clip of Master Builder, there is a portion of that clip that is a little bit intense. And I want to say, if you have young children, you may want to consider not having them watch that with you. Uh, I'll leave that to your discretion. Uh, I apologize for, cause we, we, we might have done it a little differently last week, so the children would not have been in that. But, uh, I apologize for that. But if you're, you have young children, there is a, it's, it's one brief scene that's, but it is intense and, uh, It may be a little much for children to watch. The second thing I want to say is about the uh, emergency preparedness month that we're looking to do. And I want you to understand, this is not a fear-based initiative. We are not saying, look at how hard things are getting, we're going to run to the hills and just be self-sufficient and, you know, just hide in the hill. No, no. We are here in this world to be a testimony and to be a witness, but the idea is to embrace that Joseph anointing, that Joseph uh, a blessing on our lives so that as we are here, we are being blessed and favored of God in these different areas where the world is experiencing difficulty so that we can be a blessing to the world around us. So I just wanted to clarify that so there, people can sometimes get the wrong idea on that. All right. Gene, could we put the screen up, please? And uh, if we turn to Romans chapter 1... Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bless this time in your word. Father, you've said that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. Lord, we want to be a people who are walking, even as Rich was saying, walking in the ways of your word. We want to be strong in the ways of your word, Lord God. And I'm asking that as we consider your word this morning, that... You would bless and anoint this time, Abba, I just desperately need for you to be the one leading, be the one in charge as we consider your word today, and I just thank you for that blessing. In Yeshua's name, amen, amen. Well, Eshabbat, Shabbat, we began what will likely be a lengthy series that will be a focus for us, I think, for quite a few months. As we study the book of Romans, this is something we're going to be doing. We'll do it for a few weeks and then we will have off weeks. We'll have weeks where we do other things for sure. But, but uh, I, I just, as I shared last week, I felt like the Lord has been really directing me in this area to, to, uh, to teach from this, this very, very crucial book of the scriptures. My desire with this series, and by the way, it, you know, if you miss one, each one will be a self-contained message. So it's not like, well, if you weren't at the last week, then you'll be totally in the dark. I mean, it'll be helpful to get previous CDs when you've missed, but each one will be a self-contained message. But my, my desire for this series is for us to be examining together some very foundational truths in relation to our faith truth that we must continually come back to throughout our lives in order to gain fresh insight and fresh understanding regarding our salvation and the truths of the Word. Now, I want to briefly, very quickly, review the main point because it will be relevant today to lead into what we share today. The main point that we uh, uh, considered last Shabbat we took a broad look at Romans chapters 1 through 3, and we got through chapter 3, verse 20, but we spent some time looking specifically at some key verses in chapter 1, verses that we're all likely familiar with, but let me just read them again. Romans 1, 16 and 17, Shaul is writing, "'For I am not ashamed of the good news of Messiah.'" For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous or the just shall live by faith. I shared last week about the good news, the message of salvation in Yeshua Based on this verse, that that word, that message is is uh, uh, powerful in God to impact people for righteousness in a dynamic way. In other words, it's not just a cosmetic forgiveness that's offered to us in the new covenant. It's not just a covering over of our sins, but God actually changes our nature through the power of his righteousness imparted to us. Receiving salvation results in a change in our very nature. And so really, when you look at it, the, the, the priority of the vast majority of New Covenant Scripture teaching is not so much to establish a new system of doctrines, or 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 practices or standards or of behavior. Doctrine is very important. I don't want you to mishear what I'm saying. Doctrine is very, very important. Standards of behavior are essential, but these are not the essence of what the New Covenant is all about. The dominant theme in New Covenant teaching has to do with the reality and nature of uh of the new creation that we have become through Yeshua. And that is what much of our focus will be on as we journey together through this letter of Shaul, or Paul, to the congregation in Rome. Now, in the first three chapters... Paul has made clear the universal condition of all of mankind, Jew and Gentile alike, all the world with no exceptions. Everyone stands as guilty before a holy God. There is no possibility of man becoming righteous through his own works. There is no possibility of man trying on his own to keep the standards of the Torah and actually being successful. It is not possible. He he highlights, in, in, and he really uses very strong terminology in chapter 1 and 2, the corruptness of the human race. And, and and because of that corrupt state of all of humanity, Jew and Gentile, and as we looked last week, it was from, from the most corrupt uh, 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 and godless of pagans to the most religious of Jews, everyone stands in the same boat before a holy God. That's why... The only hope for mankind is not just a covering or forgiving of our sin, but really a whole new nature that God would give us, a new heart. And that's much of, as I said, much of what we'll be considering. We concluded last week with chapter 3, verse 20, which tells us the result of trying to earn our righteousness by the keeping of Torah. It says in chapter 3, verse 20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law... No flesh will be justified in God's sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. By the law is the knowledge of sin. Now, last Shabbat, I mentioned a concept that is very important to understanding, I believe, to understanding the book of Romans. A concept that I refer to as, by the phrase, the ministry of the law. The ministry of the law. I mentioned this phrase last week, but I did not define it or explain it. And so I'm going to be defining this concept for you today. And actually, in order to do so, we're, act, we're, we're going to be looking beyond the, the book of Romans. That's just for today. Uh, uh, and, and then we'll be actually, but it'll be in preparation for the remainder of what we consider in the, in the letter to the Romans. Let's keep in mind that there are statements in Romans, as well as other portions of the New Covenant Scriptures, that if not properly understood, they could lead believers to conclude, as many many do conclude, that the law or the Torah is no longer relevant to us as believers. We have in Romans 6, for example, the statement that People love to quote when they want to tell you that there is no biblical basis for what we call Messianic Judaism, and they'll say, don't you know we're not under the law anymore? Romans 6 says, we're no longer under the law, but under grace. What in the world does that mean? We're not going to get to it today. We'll get to it when we get to chapter 6, but I'm going to give some foundations for understanding that today. You've got verses in chapter 7 that make statements like, we've been delivered, from the law, Wow. Well, what are we doing here? Why are we pulling out the Torah scrolls? Well, we're going to get a little bit of understanding on this today. And uh, like I said, we'll get it more fully when we get to each of these statements because we're going to look at those statements in context. But you see, we need to understand how it is that these statements exist in the Bible and therefore they are true. In other words, it is true that we are no longer under law, but under grace. The question is, what does that mean? How is that practically understood and practically walked out? These statements are true, yet at the same time, they do not do away with the relevance of Torah. And so we'll be considering that. I believe that our understanding of this principle of the ministry of the law is actually key to seeing this whole issue of law and grace in context. So, let's consider this, and I want to ask you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. As I said, we're going to look a little bit outside of Romans today, and that will prepare the way as we continue in Romans 3 next Shabbat. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. What was the nature of the life of faith during the times of the mosaic system, and when I refer to the mosaic system, I'm talking about the system of, uh, of of sacrifices and offerings that are outlined in quite a bit of detail in the book of Leviticus in the Torah, the system that was functioning in the times of the tabernacle and then later in the times of the temple. What was the nature of the life of faith? during the times of the Mosaic system. And understand, I am oversimplifying and overgeneralizing because the purpose of this is not to be an in-depth teaching on these issues, but I'm just giving some background and basic understanding here. See, the people of Israel would bring their sacrifices and offerings to the Lord as an expression of their need for forgiveness. They were placing their faith in the goodness of God, the mercy of God, to forgive them. However, under the Mosaic system, the people were never really freed from their sin consciousness. They could be forgiven of sins, but they were not changed on the inside. They still had that consciousness of sin, and that's part of what Hebrews 10 is talking about here. The people were never really freed from that sin consciousness. Man, through faithfully bringing offerings of sacrifice, was still unable to escape that consciousness of his sin, that consciousness of being separated and apart from a holy God. For this reason, the prophetic promises of the New Covenant that we see in the Hebrew Scriptures speak of a crucial difference between the Mosaic system and the New Covenant. The new covenant would result in the inward nature of man actually being changed. And that's why I referred to that statement, that phrase, dynamic righteousness. Not a cosmetic righteousness, but a dynamic righteousness, a righteousness that we've been given through Yeshua that's continuing to work in our lives, that's continuing to have an impact on us inwardly, and hopefully that comes from the inside into our outward actions as well. Through the new covenant, there would be not only forgiveness, but beyond forgiveness, there is the promise of empowerment for, by the Spirit of God for walking in the ways of God. Turn with me, if you would, to another well-known passage that we would refer to often here in Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31. This, along with Ezekiel 36, are probably, these are the most explicit references in the Hebrew prophets to the new covenant that God would give. I want to pick up in verse 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according And every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. The new covenant is portrayed here in the prophets as well as other places in the prophets as a contrast to the Mosaic system. It says the new covenant is not like the covenant that God had made previously. It is not like it. So the people could be forgiven in the Mosaic system. The people would be forgiven as they brought their sacrifices. But still there was this lingering consciousness of their sin and their failure before God and awareness of not measuring up to God's standards. The people were still left with a sin consciousness And so we could say that the Mosaic system, by highlighting man's inability to please God, the system itself actually pointed the people to their actual need for God, for his help, their need to be powerfully set free from sin, their need, in essence, for the Messiah and for the new covenant that he would be bringing about. Now, The primary reason for this sin consciousness was the Torah, the law itself. The law presented these ultimate standards of God's perfect righteousness. And so, seeing those standards of righteousness was to awaken man to see the contrast between God's perfect righteousness and man's own efforts to try to be righteous, which efforts would always fail. The law communicated to man the knowledge of his own sin, reminding him continually of his inability to please a holy God. So, in this way, we can say that the law has a clear impact or ministry, is the term I'm using, it has a ministry to the heart of man. The ministry of the law was a ministry that left man feeling condemned and judged for his sins and his shortcomings. Seeing God's law caused him to realize that he was hopelessly guilty before this holy God. And so we can say, as Paul does say, actually, in Romans, that a key purpose of the law is to awaken us to our sinful condition. Now, Galatians chapter 3, you may want to turn there because we're going we're to be look at some, looking at something there in just a few moments. Galatians three says something very important for us to understand, and I'm just summarizing a point here. But his point is that until the coming of the Messiah, there was there was actually a sense in which the there, there was a sense in which the, the the law was there was a temporary nature of the law. What does he mean by that? Well, Paul is not saying that the law itself is temporary. Paul's point in Galatians 3, which we'll look at in a moment, is that the guilt and condemnation that the law ministered to the heart of man was not intended to be God's final word to man. In other words, God's intent was not to leave us in condemnation. So let's consider this issue a little bit further. Remember the principle, the law was not given as a way to earn the favor of God, but the law was given to show us fully our human weakness so that man would stop trusting in himself, stop trusting in his own ability to please God. There was no power in the law to bring man closer to God, but rather the law could only result in man becoming more aware of His hopeless and sinful condition, as Sha'ul tells us in Romans 3.20, which we read a moment ago, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. That perfectly agrees, by the way, with what Yeshua said in John chapter 5, when he was talking with the Pharisees and he makes a basic statement, which is very insightful. He said, don't think I'm accusing you of anything. I don't accuse you of anything. He said, Moses is accusing you. In other words, it's the law itself that accuses you regarding your lack of true righteousness. Now, again, this speaks of the ministry of the law or the impact of the law on our lives as the law awakens us to our true condition before God. Now, I think Galatians 3 can help shed some light on this issue. If you look with me at Galatians chapter 3, just to read a few verses here, beginning at verse 19, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now let's go on to, to verse 20. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise, by faith in Yeshua HaMashiach, might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor or our schoolmaster to bring us to Messiah that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Now, again, it's one of those verses that people will point to and say, see, the law, the, the law doesn't have any relevance to us anymore. That's not what he's saying here, though. We see implied in this passage that the purpose of the law in highlighting man's sins, was that purpose was a temporary purpose. It says, until the seed should come. Who is the seed he's talking about? He's talking about Yeshua. Yeshua's coming would bring about something new in the nature of how God would relate to man. See, the law could not give life And that's part of what he's saying here as well. What man needed in light of his sin was more than just forgiveness. Man needed life. So then clearly the law can be said to have been inadequate for accomplishing in man what God ultimately wanted to accomplish. The law was powerless to change us on the inside. Now, this leads to our considering of how certain aspects of the Torah were meant by God to be temporary, because that is is the implication here. That's what's implied. So, what does he mean here? What does he mean when he implies that aspects of the Torah are to be temporary? Well, in order to understand this question, we've really got to understand the different aspects and purposes of the law, different components of the law. And again, I'm being very general here, very basic. We could teach for weeks on this and not cover it all. But I'm just going to say say some things for a few minutes just as a basis for, for considering what we're looking at here. But one purpose of the Torah was to provide a system of priesthood along with sacrifices and offerings, and we would certainly say that this aspect of Torah clearly was meant to be temporary as Yeshua's offering of his own life became the fulfillment of all the sacrifices and the offerings. Now, people bring up, well, what about it says there are going to be offerings in the millennium? We're not even going to go there, okay? I'm not going to get into that right now. And I can't say that I really understand that, to tell you the truth. But we're looking at simply this present age. There are no more sacrifices and offerings needed. And so in that sense, that part of the Torah was temporary. We're not, we're not you know, we don't have an altar up here. We're not bringing lambs and goats and, you know, all the other animals, birds, all the other kinds of things that they did. That's been fulfilled in Yeshua. That's one purpose of the law. A second purpose of the law was to reveal the righteous standards of a holy God. Commandments of God on clear standards of moral right and wrong. Now, I think it's worth noting that the Torah was not the first revelation of these righteous standards of God. People say, well, God began his revelation of the Ten Commandments. No, he didn't. The Ten Commandments may be the first place where it was written, but that's not the initial revelation of God of his righteous standards because we find reference in Romans 1 and 2 that God's basic ways of righteousness were revealed to man from the time of creation, from the beginning of time. Mankind had this basic knowledge of God revealed to him, this knowledge of God's righteous ways. Let me just give you an example. You remember in the, the story of Joseph, for, 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 for instance, This took place before the giving of the law. How is it that Joseph knew that it was wrong to commit adultery with Potiphar's wife? They didn't have the Torah. They didn't have the Ten Commandments, which said, thou shalt not, you know, commit adultery. They knew there was the revelation of God's basic standards of righteousness prior to the actual giving of the law. Okay? That's just one example. I could give you dozens of examples just like that. Prior to the giving of the law, where it was clear they understood the principles of God's righteousness. Now, the Torah was given to more fully, I would say to clarify and further define these basic moral standards that man has understood since the creation. The Torah gave further explanation, further definition, expanding on some of these moral issues. Now, here's the question. Are the moral aspects of God's law temporary? I would say they are not. That particular purpose of the Torah absolutely is still valid. God says in his word that he himself does not change. And, you know, it's interesting when people say, well, that, we're, you know, we're no longer under the law. If you were to ask them the question, well, does that mean you can just go out and kill your neighbor? Well, no, but. And I've never really heard a very satisfactory answer beyond, well, no, but. Because there is no answer. It's not done away with, you see. But see, God says in his word that he himself does not change. And so we know that his standards of morality have not changed, and they've not been done away with. It's just as wrong now to murder or to steal or to commit adultery or to lie or any number of things that we could mention. It's just as wrong now as it was in Exodus 20 when this was written out and given to Israel as the written law. Now we should also note that... Paul in Romans 8.4 wrote something kind of interesting. He said that God's intent is that the righteous requirements of the law are to be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Well, if the righteous requirements of the law are to be fulfilled in us, obviously these moral standards are not temporary. And those walking in the Spirit will be the ones who are empowered to live this out most fully. Okay, so that's a second purpose, and that is the moral standards of God. A third purpose of the Torah was to provide a cycle of life for the nation of Israel in which there would be special times and seasons of celebrating God's grace and goodness to the nation, times of remembrance for the great acts of God, on behalf of the nation, and also times of looking ahead to the age to come. Through this biblical heritage, the Jewish people fulfill God's calling and purpose for us to be an identifiable and recognizable people on the earth. We've looked at this many times, the the final verses of Jeremiah 31 where it talks about as long as the sun is in the sky and the moon and the stars and all the expanse of the universe, as long as that's all in place, then the Jewish people will always exist as a recognizable people on the earth. So the specific heritage of Judaism rooted in the Torah is a part of that expression of the Jewish people being a recognizable people. Now, in addition to the feasts and celebrations, there's also practices and customs of lifestyle that are rooted in the Torah that are part of that distinctiveness of calling on Jewish people. We might refer to all of these collectively. And again, we could give much more explanation than I'm going to give today. And probably I will do, do some more, some uh, more in-depth teaching on, on some of these issues in the future, but not today. But we can refer to these collectively as ceremonial laws with each of the ceremonial laws pointing to spiritual issues, but the content itself is symbolic or ceremonial. Let me give you an example. It says in the scriptures to uh, uh, to write the words of God in the doorposts of your house and on your gates, and that the fulfillment of that has come to be what's called the mezuzah, which is a little box, you see it as you walk in the, 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 the congregation, and it's got a a, a a small piece of parchment with some of the scriptures on it. Is that a moral law? No. It's a symbolic law, it's a ceremonial law, because that little box, the mezuzah, points us to something that is the issue of substance, which is the word of God and the centrality of the word of God itself. So, there 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 are these ceremonial laws as well as the moral laws. There is a difference. Observing these ceremonial laws does not affect whether a person is saved or not, but these practices and observances certainly are still valid for expressing our faith in Yeshua. Unlike the moral laws, the ceremonial laws are not requirements for all people. They are a part of what we would refer to as aspects of Jewish life and practice. It's part of what makes the Jewish people a... A, a unique and identifiable and recognizable people on the earth, but at the same time, all nations are certainly welcome to join with us in our living out this distinctive lifestyle. Which is what I see is one of the one of the aspects of the beauty of a messianic congregation is that it's Jew and Gentile together living out this Jewish life and Jewish expression. So we can see in the scriptures that this too was not intended to be temporary or done away with. So you've got the sacrificial system, temporary. You've got the moral laws, not temporary. And you've got the ceremonial laws, optional, in other words, not required for all human beings, but at the same time not done away with. Now... What believers will often do is to lump together all of these different components of the law, and when they see passages in the New Testament that portray the law as being in some way temporary or no longer relevant, they wrongly assume that such passages are speaking of the Torah in its entirety. And it's a wrong application of the scriptures, and it's a wrong understanding of the use of the word law in the New Covenant scriptures. Now, I, I do want to say, we'll be considering some of these passages in the weeks to come. We'll see what they mean, we'll see what they don't mean, um, And but we'll see it in context is the point. But these types of passages generally refer to very specific aspects of the law that are no longer to be relevant for us, and not the law in its entirety. Do you follow what I'm saying? Yes? No? Okay. Okay. Now, the three components of the Torah that I mentioned were the priesthood and the sacrificial system, the moral laws expressing God's righteous standards, and the ceremonial laws relating to feasts and celebrations as well as other issues of lifestyle. But then I want to add this fourth component of the law, what we're referring to as the ministry of the law. As I've studied this out, I've concluded that New Testament passages that imply or state a doing away with the law for believers, in most of these passages, in most cases, not everyone, some of them deal with the sacrificial system, but most of the passages and the ones certainly that we'll be looking at in Romans... I believe that it's actually the ministry of the law that's being referred to. And I'm going to give a little explanation of this today, but I think you'll see it more clearly as we get to some of the specific verses in the weeks to come. Um, and, and I just want to say also, in, as, in the weeks to come, as you understand the significance of this, of the ministry of the law in Paul's teaching, my hope is that it, it will forever remove all the questions that you might have about how law and grace can actually go together. How we as believers can grow in God's grace and yet still see the importance and relevance of the law for our lives as believers. But even more important, I believe this, this issue of the ministry of the law will help to give you a deeper understanding of actually of the grace of God and how that impacts your life personally. Now, Here's the question we need to ask. What did the law itself minister to the people? Well, we've already touched on this. That the law had an impact on man to keep him continually aware of his sin. And so we can say that the law ministered condemnation and guilt to man's consciousness. Now, turn with me over to to 2 Corinthians 3. We're going to look at a very important passage. And I'm wondering, could we get a little bit of air on here? It's it's a little warm up here today. (laughs) 2 Corinthians 3. We don't need it down to 60, but a little bit lower would be nice. (laughs) Beginning at verse 5. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. Let's unpack this a little bit. This is one of those passages that's often misunderstood because phrases will be pulled out of context. And so people will pull out the phrase, well, don't you know, the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. Well, that's absolutely right. But just to take it out of context and apply it to the wrong thing, that's the problem. And so people will wrongly conclude that anything and everything connected to the Torah just produces death. But that's not what he's saying here. Paul is not saying, uh, referring here to the Torah as a whole. He's not saying that the Torah is obsolete or that observance of Jewish life or ceremonial laws of the Torah is likened to death. He's saying that the law ministered death. Specifically, he's drawing a contrast between the ministry of the law and the ministry of the New Covenant. He's not referring to the law as something bad or negative. He's speaking of the ministry of the law as something that could not produce what God ultimately intended for man to experience. Man's need is for God's righteousness. Man's need is for life, but the law ministered the very opposite, leaving man guilty and, and, and condemned as it highlights man's sinful condition. It couldn't change man. And so Paul refers to this ministry of the law. It's, it's impact on man as a ministry of death. Why did he call it that? Because it shows man righteous standards that are required of us, and yet standards that we're incapable of of keeping. And the result is it highlights our condition of spiritual death, thus a ministry of death. It highlights our condition of spiritual separation from a holy God. That's what the law ministers to us. The law leaves unredeemed man guilty and separated from God and God's life-giving presence. As such, it's a ministry of death. It's a ministry of condemnation. However, the new covenant, he says, brings us into a ministry of righteousness. It's a ministry of life by the Spirit of God. What's meant by, this state, by these statements? They speak of the fact that the new covenant in Yeshua impacts our lives in two very powerful ways. First of all, God goes beyond forgiving us, and he actually makes us righteous as he imparts to us the perfect righteousness of Yeshua himself. That is this ministry of life and righteousness 2 Corinthians 3 is talking about. So, in that way, the new covenant has an impact or a ministry of righteousness upon our hearts as we're made alive to God and we can actually experience fellowship with God. Secondly, The Holy Spirit, who now lives in us, continues this ministry of righteousness, causing the power of God to be alive in us. There is, in every single believer in Yeshua, an active work of righteousness by the Holy Spirit, a ministry of life. The new covenant does not minister condemnation to us. It ministers true life and righteousness in a dynamic way that is intended to change us. Certainly the Torah is still valid in the standards that it gives to us. It's still valid in the distinctiveness of lifestyle that we're instructed in. But it's the law's ministry of condemnation that becomes nullified, if you will, through the work of the new covenant. The law's ministry of condemnation is not God's final word to us anymore. Rather, that ministry of condemnation is meant to actually lead us to see our own need for the ministry of the new covenant that brings us into God's true righteousness. So to kind of put that all down in, 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 in real simple terminology, as we try to keep the law and we see our failure, it's meant to lead us to see, I need something more than what I have in order to live this thing out and in order to have a relationship with this God who loves me and who I want to love with all of my heart. All right, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. A couple more things we'll look at. Verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. That's kind of interesting. What's the writer referring to here when he speaks of the fault of the first covenant. He says, if that had, if it had been faultless. In other words, the implication is it is not faultless. What's he referring to? I believe he's speaking about the ministry of the law. It was, it's not that God's law itself had fault. How could the revelation of God's eternal standards of righteousness have fault? But you see, it was the ministry of the law that showed the fault of that first covenant. The reason it was faulty or inadequate is the very issue we've been looking at here. The fault was that the law, though it highlighted man's sin, it had no power to bring about the change in man that that man truly needs. God desired to bring man into intimate fellowship with himself, but the ministry of the law could not accomplish that. In fact, it produced the opposite. The ministry of the law actually prevented man from experiencing the intimate fellowship with God that we're created for and that we need. And so it's valid to say that the ministry of the law demonstrated the fault of the first covenant. Now, don't get upset with me for those words. It's right out of Hebrews. It demonstrated the fault of the first covenant. Rather than producing spiritual life, it could only highlight man's condition of spiritual death. Let's read further. Uh, Verse 8. Because finding fault with them, God says... Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. We read this earlier from Jeremiah 31. That's what he's quoting. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. What is it that the writer identifies as the reason for God needing to make a new covenant? Well, look at the wording. It says, finding fault with them. So first he says there's a fault with the covenant. but then And he says the fault with the covenant is that it leaves things in a place where he is able to find fault with the people. Finding fault with them, them refers to the people who abided by the Mosaic sacrificial system as outlined in the Torah, Israelites who day after day, year after year, generation after generation, they brought their sacrifices and offerings to the Lord, but still could not be inwardly changed or made alive to God. The first covenant left the people in their condition of spiritual death. There was still fault found in them. And so, God's response was to provide that new covenant that would actually produce spiritual life in man, enabling man to become alive to God. See, friends, God desired a covenant with his people in which there would no longer be the finding of fault in them. And you need to hear that and let that sink into your life and your heart as far as what that means. That doesn't mean that we never do wrong. It means that God is not looking to find fault in us because of that righteous, that work of God's, of His righteousness through Yeshua. Yes, God wants us to observe His commands and walk in His ways, but our performance, our ability to keep the law is not what God is focused on. Yes, we've got to be a people of very, very high standards a people who seek to walk in righteousness and holiness, we should desire nothing less than to express the glorious nature of Yeshua himself. But we are not to subject ourselves to a a legalistic walk that emphasizes our performance, a walk that emphasizes human effort to keep God's law. See, with that kind of orientation, we will continually be finding fault in ourselves. And that's the very thing that it says the new covenant is meant to take us out of. See, as our performance falls short of perfection, we'll end up coming under the ministry of condemnation where our faults are emphasized. And as a result, we end up holding ourselves back. You know, when we're under condemnation, we sort of stay at a distance from God. We hold ourselves back from the enjoyment of the presence of God. This is the nature of that ministry of condemnation, the ministry of the law. It leaves us feeling condemned, separated from God and His life-giving presence. And the sad truth for so many believers in Yeshua is that so many focus on their performance and failures and continue to live under the ministry of condemnation when in fact God is not looking to find fault in us. Beloved, we can end up ruled by our feelings in response to our performance. And when that's the case, we will not experience the impact of grace that God wants us to experience in our lives. Now what about verses like John 1:17? Well, it says, "There, "The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Yeshua the Messiah." Clearly, there is an implied contrast between law and grace. but it's not to say grace is good and law is bad. I believe the contrast is found in the ministry of the law to man as opposed to the ministry of grace to the heart of man. Grace does not do away with God's law. Grace simply has a ministry to our lives that is different from the ministry of the law. The grace of God impacts man to lift us up out of sin and unrighteousness. Grace elevates us to a new level of life in which we can really experience transformation. So, as we consider this issue of law, the law having a temporary purpose, we're to understand that it's it's not the standards of the Torah that are temporary, and then it's not the Jewish life aspects of the Torah that are temporary, because we must remember that with, with the feasts and the holy days and so many of these different things, when God gave them to Israel, he presented them very clearly as being everlasting ordinances. There's no sense of temporary in the wording. Well, it's the ministry of the law that was meant to be temporary. It's the ministry of the law leaving us guilty and condemned. The ministry of the law that leaves us separated from the presence and life of our Heavenly Father. Has the Torah itself been done away with? Absolutely not. But, <clears throat> excuse me, as those who know Yeshua, as those who've come into the grace that God makes available to us, The ministry of the law no longer leaves us guilty and condemned. We can partake of the glorious ministry of life and righteousness through Yeshua. That dynamic ministry of the new covenant as God brings transformation into our lives and takes us from glory to glory by his spirit as we are being impacted by that grace of God. The law ministered condemnation and spiritual death. But the ministry of the new covenant to man is a ministry by the Holy Spirit of life and righteousness. Grace ministers to us a life and righteousness that we do not deserve. And I'll tell you something, that should be a great encouragement to every one of us. Because you know something, just as it's a real guilt and condemnation that, that ministered to us by the law. And I mean, I think we all know when we feel guilty and condemned, it's real. It feels very, very real. Well, it's a real righteousness that's ministered to us by the Holy Spirit through the new covenant and through the power of God's grace at work in our lives. We've got to focus on those things. We've got to meditate on those things, folks. Remember what we saw earlier from Romans 1. The good news is the power of God unto salvation. The good news ministers to man's inner being in a dynamic way to actually make us righteous through the power of Yeshua's life imparted to us. It's a ministry of life and righteousness that does away with the condemnation that came because of our shortcomings. Does that mean we'll never sin again? No, it doesn't. Sadly, we will likely, we will likely sin again, but we don't have to live under the condemnation of that because when we acknowledge what we've done, we acknowledge our shortcomings, we confess it, we repent, we return, and we can step by faith right back into that place of the grace of God that empowers us and lifts us up into a new place of walking in his righteous ways. So, we have been delivered and set free not from God's standards of righteousness or from the joy of Jewish life and celebrating the feasts, but folks, it's the ministry of the law that we're delivered from. And as those free from guilt and condemnation, now we're free to grow daily in the grace of Yeshua's life. When we give ourselves to receive by faith that new covenant ministry of life and righteousness as the Holy Spirit ministers the reality of Yeshua's righteousness to us in that dynamic way that we spoke about last week. It causes to be irrelevant that ministry of the law that used to leave us feeling guilty and condemned and like, oh, it can never do anything right. God's mad at it. Now, we're going to see the importance of this principle more and more clearly in the weeks to come. I wanted to introduce it this morning and to introduce it in depth in the way that I did because it's going to be so relevant to things that we consider uh, uh from this point on in this letter to the Romans in the weeks to come. It's crucial to our understanding of the law, it's crucial to our understanding of grace. And as we learn through this letter to bring these concepts of law and grace together, I'm telling you it can be life-changing to us as we embrace these truths by faith. Let's close in prayer. Father, we just thank you today that your word is life. Lord, we want to just today stand in that place before you of freedom from guilt and condemnation. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. I I just want everybody's eyes closed right now, and I, I, I sense that some people really may need to respond here. Because lots of believers still live in condemnation. Now, I'm not saying we should be content with sinning. I'm not saying we should be relaxed about that. But there is a process when we sin of getting right with God. And if we will walk out that process, we don't have to live in one moment of condemnation once we've confessed and repented. If you've struggled with this issue of getting out from under the weight of condemnation. I I just believe God wants to touch you and minister to you today. I'm going to ask you, just lift up your hand if that's an area where you've struggled. If anyone has struggled with this issue of condemnation, it is a a, a thing many, many believers struggle with. Just as an acknowledgement to the Lord, lift up your hand. This isn't to me. This is to God. Father, I just pray for each one here, Lord, who needs to be set free from that burden of condemnation that you've never intended for us to carry. Lord, we thank you that your grace impacts us with the real righteousness of Yeshua. I pray for a fresh revelation of that grace and of that righteousness to each one here today, and especially, Lord, those who've lifted up their hands, who struggle in this area who struggle with feeling like they don't measure up. Father, I'm asking that you would impart something fresh and new. Lord, in the name of Yeshua, the Messiah, we break off of everyone here that, that stronghold of condemnation, that stronghold of accusation. And in the name of Yeshua, we command it to be gone. We take authority over it. And Father, we just pray a release of your life and power to minister to your people out of your love and out of your goodness. We thank you, Lord, for the incredible greatness of what you've provided for us. We just want to receive that today in a fresh way, that work of grace, that work of your spirit. We thank you, Lord, in Yeshua's name. Amen. Let's stand together. and We want to close. We want to give God thanks for his goodness to us.